0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to GBC. Thanks for um, singing praises to God with us today. It's it's a joy. Um, I'm going to pray for our time studying God's Word. I also want to pray for Michael Brady. Uh, Nick found out at 4 a.m. that Michael Brady was possibly suffering from appendicitis. It turns out I, I just found out that he is going into uh, surgery in the next couple of hours, and so um, everyone text Michael who has his number that just well wishes, and, uh, and, but also we're going to pray for him uh, just because that's better than texting. Uh, so let me, let me pray and we will... <laughs> it's true. Let me pray and we will uh, dive into God's word. Lord, uh, we really are grateful for Michael Brady. We're grateful for our entire worship team that helps out so much to facilitate... <clears throat> The singing of beautiful songs and that are beautiful because they're true, and they're true in reference to your gospel and to your character and to the nature of your grace. Uh, thank you so much. We we do pray for Michael, Lord, that you'd give his doctors um, great dexterity, and ultimately that you would heal him. I, I pray that he would come out of this uh, and learn good things about your goodness and your provision, uh, Father. I, I want to pray for this time too in First Corinthians. 13, and just ask that we would have new eyes to see an old text, and that we would live our lives in congruence to what uh, we find in this text by the conviction and the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. And so help us in all of this, and and Lord, help this to be a joyful exploration of something maybe that you've called us to that, that often gets lost in the shuffle. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week me and four other guys from Grace Bible Church went to the great state of Kansas to go on a bow hunting trip and it was a fantastic like a really wonderful time with God and these guys totally uninterrupted by the presence of big white-tailed deer. It, it was fantastic. It was it was very pure. Uh, we we just had fellowship and fellowship and fellowship and, and and no deer. They're out there. We saw pictures of them all the time at night, but it was it was warm and the moon was bad and you know, another year of futility. Anyway, one of the highlights of this trip, even even though we didn't see many deer, was our outfitter. It's a guy named John Collum. He is godly. He works hard. He's become a dear friend, and he's got this great staff of guys who, most of whom, love Jesus as well. And so, th- his staff takes us to and from our. our our stands where, where we're hunting. And, and one of the guys that I've, I've gotten to know over the last couple of years is a guy named Luke. And, and Luke's fantastic. He's, he's maybe 25, 26 years old, really sincere Christian. He, he knows that I'm a pastor. And, and so on the way to one of our stands, he, he asked me this question. He, he was like, you know, people at our church are, are talking a lot these days about wanting the church to be more spirit-filled. And, and then he pauses and he's like, what does that mean? Man, what a great question. I mean, seriously, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? Like, think about that. Everyone talks about, oh, you know, the feeling of the Holy Spirit, and we want to be fi- spirit-filled. But I think it means so many different things to so many different people. And, and so let me give you a, a couple of examples. Some people think that in order for a church to be spirit-filled, it has, it has to have a certain type of music. And I, I don't know if you've, you've been to these churches, but, like, they they kind of... They they get you working toward some sort of a state, some some emotional, <clears throat> pardon me, a state, and 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 so like we think that spirit filled is a guy way up the fretboard, you know, something like that, and you're like, I don't have any problem with guitars and up the fretboard and anything like that, but. But is that really the key to being spirit filled? And some people are like, "Well, it's a spirit filled church when, when everyone has their antennas up, you know." Like, and and, and like, I want to be more expressive at Grace Bible Church. I, I think whatever posture that you are most fully engaged in worship, that is the posture that you you should basically assume. But I also don't know that there's a posture that like enables the Holy Spirit to work. I, like I, that that seems kind of funny. Some people would say that to be spirit filled, everyone's got to speak in tongues. Uh, you know, there there are those churches out there that like the everyone else is kind of JV, but but if, if you've arrived, you've spoken in tongues, and now you're on the varsity, and you know you're, it's kind of a big deal. And, and, then, and then there's other people who have seen that church and have gone the other way, and are like, shh, we don't talk about the Spirit. <laughs> if we do, we're going to end up like those crazy people. You know, so it's just all over the place. It, it really is all over the place. Our text today is going to ultimately address what it means to be spirit-filled as an individual or collectively as a church. It's not going to come right away, so we're going to have to work for it a little bit, but, but that's where we're going, and that's pretty exciting. Let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right where Daniel left off last week, verse 31. Paul writes, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, earnestly desire the highest gifts. The first question you ought to be asking is, what on earth is Paul talking about? Because if you were here last week, you also know that, that he made a great point that all of the gifts are needed, that, that all the gifts are, are critical to the church and, and basically he's saying they're all really important. And so it seems like he's kind of contradicting himself by saying greatly desire the higher gifts. And so you ought to be asking the question, what does Paul mean by the higher gifts? It's a great question. If, if that's the question that you asked, I applaud you. We're just not going to answer it today. Wah, wah, wah. You know, that's kind of a bummer, but I'll tell you why. It's not because we're ducking anything. If if you look at chapter 14, verse 1, right after in verse 12, verse 31, but eagerly desire the higher gifts, Paul says pursue love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. Now, eagerly desire is the exact same verb in the exact same construction. It's an imperatival form uh, of the Greek verb, And ultimately in chapter 14 verse 1 when he uses the same verb and the same construction he's signaling his audience resumption. So I've raised a topic in chapter 12 verse 31 and now I'm going to resume that topic in chapter 14. So he's raising a good question but it's as if Paul is hitting pause for our whole passage today. Now Here's the danger with me saying it's as if Paul has hit pause. What you're typically going to think is, oh, this must be some sort of digression. West goes into digressions all the time. We understand digressions, but don't presume my communication style, which is very flawed, upon Paul because he's writing the Word of God. It's not a digression. It's actually an orientation. Look at verse 31 but earnestly desire the higher gifts. We're going to come back to that in chapter 14. And I will show you a still more excellent way. I want you to see that as Paul said, I'm going to show you where true north is. I'm going to show you where true north is because what I'm going to say now is going to define everything else I'm going to say later. This is true north. You don't understand east, south, or west until you understand where true north is. This is the goal. Everything else is based on the bearing that you are going to receive in chapter 13. Our our text today gives us bearing. So without further ado, let's see what Paul is talking about. Where is true north? Verses 1 through 3, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. What is this text telling us? Like, big picture. This is it. Being spirit-filled isn't as much about our various religious activities that God has enabled us to do as it is about what drives us. That's what this text is about. It's not about what we do. It's about why we do it. Remember the context of 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians have been using their gifts consistently all through 1 Corinthians. If you're new here, we've been in this thing for months And it's been very consistent. The Corinthians have been using the gifts that God has given them for self-promotion or selfish gain. It's been very consistent. So much so that when we started this chapter, we get to or this section, chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And then verse 7, very important, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So see, the, the Corinthians have been using the gifts God has given them in such a way that they're promoting themselves. Like, look at me, I'm a really big deal. And Paul says, the Spirit gives a variety of gifts to a variety of different Christians for the common good. For the common good so, so this isn't about self-promotion this is about ministering to other people and the way you're going to minister to other people is by having a disposition of love toward other people see here, here's the deal that you have to understand why is chapter 13 here chapter 13 is here in the midst of a, a three chapter section on spiritual gifts chapter 13 which is about love is here because love opposes self-promotion they, like if If you're tired of being so focused on self, the answer isn't just to try not to focus on self. You will focus on self. The answer is get after loving other people. Love is an orientation towards service and sacrifice on behalf of others. That's what it means to each as a manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So if, if we're actually after the common good, we'll actually actually be after love. Love is the motivation which is, why we use our gifts for others' benefits. So let's ask this question. What spiritual activity do you do that you might fall into a motivation of selfish gain or selfish ambition? I'll apply this to me first. I, I, I think that is only fair. I could say, if I preach, if I preach my best sermon ever, let, let's, let's go all the way with this. If, if I crush it, hypothetically nobody's ever seen it but if it if it did happen like it, you know meteors you know hit and west preaches an incredible if i if i preached a great sermon but i have not love i gain nothing that's what the text says this applies to you too if i attend church every sunday faithfully but i have not love Like I come and I'm proud of myself for coming or I'm coming for selfish gain. I'm just trying to gain more information about Jesus so I can puff myself up with my theological knowledge. That's the reason I come, for selfish gain, not to use my gifts to encourage and exhort other people. If I'm doing it for that reason, even coming to church for selfish gain, results in nothing. We can go further still. If I lead a Bible study at work, like, I'm getting up early, I'm preparing a lesson, and I'm doing it faithfully, but I have not love. I'm doing it because I think it'll impress my boss or my coworkers or will give me something. But it's not because I love the people who I'm inviting to come that they might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I'm doing it for selfish gain, but I have not love, I am nothing. We'll go all the way with this. It's a timely application. If I serve turkeys to refugees, not around Thanksgiving, but on Thanksgiving Day, the pinnacle of sacrifice for Christians in Houston, Texas. If I do that, but I do it to appease my conscience for otherwise being miserly and self-indulgence in my wealth. So that I can feel good about myself. If I don't do it for my love of the refugees that God has given me to minister to, I'm nothing. I'm a clanging gong. That's all it is. That's all it is. I'm glad this is here. I tend, we tend, to make everything about us, don't we? In our insecurity, we're constantly going, I wonder what people thought about me. It's true, we do it all the time. Love is key because love keeps us oriented toward God and toward other people. So whatever we do, we don't do it so that people will look at us. We do it because we love other people and we want them to know the Jesus who is transforming our souls. What would your if I do blank but have not love be? What, what do you need to be careful to guard? What, what religious activity might be your identity, might be the vehicle by which you get some sort of selfish indulgence? What, what is that? I think this is a warning to be careful. My, my friend Luke the guy was taking me to my bow hunting blind, he asked, you know, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? The mark of a spirit-filled life is a person's willingness to use our gifts, whichever gifts it is that God has given us, and he's given us, if we're Christians, he's given us all gifts, so that we might love other people. That's, that's what it means to be spirit-filled, to, to live in obedience with the gifts God has given us that, that we might love other people. What, what's the mark of a spirit-filled church? Well, it's, it's a collection of individuals who understand what their gifts are and, and they are using those gifts not for their own self-glory, but that they might minister to each other, that they might spur one another on toward loving good deeds. You come to church then not for your own selfish gain. You come to church that you might love other people. How? How much more meaningful is that? Like, that's so much more fun than like, oh, I didn't really like the worship today. You know, it, it didn't really hit me. You know, they didn't hit the right minor chords. So I, you know, like, what? Like, let's get over consumerism and invest in other people. I think Paul thinks this is really important. But let's, let's play the devil's advocate a little bit. How is Paul so sure that love should be our focus? I mean, I'm not sure the Corinthians are buying what he's selling. The the Corinthians have been like, you know, we're a pretty big deal. We're speaking in tongues. we're, We're doing all sorts of crazy things. I don't know that we need an apostle. God's given us direct revelation. Like, how do we know that Paul is right here? His proof is found in verses 8 through 13. I get that I've skipped skipped verses 4 through 7. We're coming back to it. You guys can be a little uptight. (laughs) Verses 8 through 13. Paul says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly lit, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. They remain, these three. But the greatest of these is love. What's he doing here? He's put all his chips in on love. If if love isn't your motivation, you're a clanging gong. You're nothing. You gain nothing. That's really strong language, right? And and people might push back. And so he is defending his all-in position. He's, He's defending his statements. The Corinthians, who speak in tongues at least, of think that they've arrived. But the problem is we know from the rest of 1 Corinthians that that they haven't arrived, right? We we know, in fact, that morally they're pretty bankrupt. They are. They're they're doing all sorts of twisted stuff. We also know that they're not very unified. There's divisions, there's factions among them. Paul has addressed that two or three times now in 1 Corinthians. So it's like dysfunction junction, like the church is not healthy. That's, That's what we know. But they're speaking in tongues, they're having ecstatic experiences, much like the ecstatic experiences they had when they were worshiping pagan gods in in the pagan temples. They're like, this is better though. And Paul's like, I'm not sure what you're doing is better. And and his answer is, focus on the things that are primary because the thing that is primary is also the thing that is permanent. Everything else is temporal or or partial. If if you look at verses 8 Through 13, he's going to say, the things that you're all about, they're in part or they're going away. I mean, he says in verse 8, in contrast, what? Love never ends. Prophecies, they pass away. Tongues, they're going to cease. Knowledge, passing away. Everything else is either diminished in its current state or it's going away. We better focus on the thing that is primary because the thing that is primary is also the thing that is permanent. Love never ends. <clears throat> I actually think there's a great message for us. How many of us are tempted to preoccupation with things that are temporal? That might be a little bit too obscure for you, so I'm going to break it down a little for us. It's going to be uncomfortable. Things that are temporal as opposed to things that are permanent. Like a preseason top ten ranking. Like, like hopes of winning a Big 12 championship. Like, like the new house that we're trying to buy or, or to build. Like the new toy. This is me. That I'm totally focused on researching so that I can justify spending more than I should on it. Yesterday. <laughs> binocular harnesses. It's embarrassing. I spent like two and a half hours researching binocular harnesses. Marsupials. They're the best ones. (laughs) Literally, they're in a checkout cart. (laughs) (laughs) That new house that you're so focused on, it's going to be destroyed one day. Or it's gonna burn down sooner. Or, or you're gonna sell it and you're like, yeah, but I'm gonna make a lot of money on it. Right. And you're gonna put it in the stock market. And what's gonna happen there? You, you, you see, I mean, we, we will totally fixate on things that are temporal at the expense of focusing on loving other people, at the expense of focusing on the kingdom, which is also eternal. We gravitate to the temporal as opposed to the things that are eternal. and we misspend our lives because we are misappropriating our attention. That's that's true of me. I I think it's true of a lot of us. In contrast, love never ends. Prophecy and tongues, wisdom, all this stuff, they're not going to last. Faith, hope, and love will remain. And love's the greatest of all of them. That's what verse 13 says. That's Paul's argument there. Focus on the things that matter. Focus on the things that are permanent, that are eternal. Now, Paul's gone all in. Whatever your motive is, it better be love. Otherwise, you're a clanging gong. That's all in. If that is true, we'd better figure out what love looks like. Verses 4 through 7 give us a pretty good picture. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Just to review, are the Corinthians loving? No. Thus far... All we've seen from the Corinthians is they're about selfish gain, self-absorption, self-promotion. Anything that starts with self, they're experts. They're experts. But they are not any of these things. Ultimately, Paul is saying that love is the key to them growing toward God because love is the antithesis of all the things that they are. I, I find it ironic, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. This text, verses four through seven, is oftentimes read at weddings. I don't think that's a problem. I, I think it's fine. It's, it's beautiful stuff what verses four through seven say. There is certainly application at a wedding. But when we read it at a wedding, we're like, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> you, you know what's going on here? Just to be clear, Verses four through seven is Paul taking the Corinthians to the woodshed. Like he he is here's how it goes. Love is patient and kind. You're not patient or kind. Like we've already demonstrated that. Love does not envy or boast. That's all you do. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own ways. Oops. I mean, like he is taking them to task. I'm not going to cover all of this. We don't have time. Let me cover a few that I, I think there's a little bit more meaning than we would presume. Love is patient and kind. Patient is long suffering. What what that means is Paul's saying, you know what love is? Love is what enables you to stick with people. Like when when they are inconvenient friends, you're still their friend. That's what patient means. Kind. We think kind. We, we think, oh, he's so kind. He never says anything bad about anyone. Like, kind is what you don't do? It's not true. Kind, biblically, is being willing to wade into the mess that you might help or assist people who desperately need help or assistance. That's what kindness is. Kind, you know, oh, he's so kind. He says such sweet things. There's more there. Love isn't arrogant. This is an interesting one. The word means to inflate, to blow up, or to puff up. If, if there is a word in Greek that talks about self-promotion, this is it. I, I, when I look at this, and it says love is not arrogant, and the presumption is the Corinthians are falling way short of this because they are arrogant. I, like, I, I think in my mind about getting on my iPhone and, and calling Tom Corinthian. And, and Tom Corinthian, in my mind, has an iPhone, that's, that's what we call a cultural relevance, okay, and, and Tom Corinthian answers the phone, and he says, Tom Corinthian, certainly you've heard of me, it's that, it's that kind of deal, and, and if I, oh, you know, I, I don't know that I have heard of you, Tom, well, that is your loss, let me tell you all about myself, and they go on for 15 minutes talking about how great he is, and, and how impoverished you are for not having been blessed with his acquaintance up until now. That's what arrogance is. That's what arrogance is. Love isn't about self-promotion. Love is about serving others. Last one that we'll cover. Love isn't rude. It's a tough one to translate. Rude's fine, as fine as any other English word. neo is the Greek word. neo. And askimoneo neo." literally means to act in defiance of a moral standard. Let me, let me break this down. neo comes from the word schema. And the word schema, where we get the word schematic, is a plan. It's a plan. A, in front of neo," is the negation of schema. So neo means not according to plan. God has designed us with sensibilities and, and a moral compass. And, and sometimes, and we've met these people, they get incredibly off track. its It's not just, oh, he was a little bit rude today. He is off the reservation. The word there means to act in defiance of a moral standard and it assumes that God has created a moral standard to which we adhere, or should adhere. I want to drill down on this just for a second, if I could. Think about this. The people that you have seen who have gone off the reservation, that have jumped the tracks, and they're now off in a wilderness, morally. Would you agree with me that when they jumped the tracks, it was rarely because they were trying so hard to use their gifts to love other people? Isn't that fair? Like, it's very hard to sin when you are trying to utilize the gifts that God has given you for the edification of others. It's hard to argue with, right? So, when do people go off the reservation? When do they jump? The tracks. It's very simple. When our selfish desires overwhelm us, when we want what we want and we want it so badly that we don't see anything else, we get blinders on. And then we will justify, we will excuse any sort of selfish behavior, sinful behavior. Isn't that true? If you are others focused, if you're thankful for the gifts that God has given and you are utilizing them for the edification of others. It's hard to sin. It really is. Love isn't rude. Love enables us to focus on others and to serve others and so we don't go off the reservation. Look at verse 7 with me real quick. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If there was one verse in this chapter that I, I wish I could adhere to, it's, it's verse 7. This, this is an amazing verse for me. What would our relationships look like individually and collectively as a church if, if we hoped for each other? if we bore with one another, if we believed the best of each other in all things, if we endured all sins committed against us. That's what verse 7 is calling us to. What, what would that look like? I'll tell you this. On my very best day, when I am empowered by the Holy Spirit, when, when I am in, living in recognition of the fact that I am a new creation in Christ, when when I am killing it, I do verse 7 imperfectly, at best imperfectly. And that can be demoralizing if it doesn't cause you to lift your gaze and to recognize that Jesus nailed every one of those things every single time every single time. Think about that. He never sinned. He never sinned. And, and so the Holy Spirit enables me to look a little bit like Jesus. I'm not going to do it perfectly, but, but even in the places where I fall short of, of looking perfectly like Jesus, Jesus did it perfectly. And my righteousness is not found in my good works, but in his good works, his righteousness, which is imputed to me. And let me press that a little bit further and then we're going to transition to communion. Love bears all things. Bears means cover over. That's, that's what the Greek word means. It means cover over. So love covers over all things. This is a very relational passage. So so the all things here, love covers over the faults of others think about that for just a second. Love covers over all the faults of others. This this does not excuse you from confronting in love your friends who are in sin. I I'm not don't abuse scripture. That's not what we're talking about. Like people do that. I'm just going to be gracious. You're being a coward sometimes. You just don't want to confront people. I get that. I've got that temptation too. That's not what this text is saying. Let's move on. What this is saying is that love covers over the faults of others. And that we're called by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do that. And I'm not going to do it perfectly. But it's, it's fun to think that the blood of Christ covers over our sins. And and so, this is so fun. When, When I'm feeling like I can't forgive, and I won't forgive, and I don't want to forgive, and ugh. I can remember that Jesus has done exactly the same thing to me that he is calling us to do in other people's lives. Exactly the same thing. So Jesus has covered over my sins. It's not that he hasn't addressed them. He doesn't hold them against me anymore. And so he continues to press in. He, he doesn't abandon me. He calls me to repentance and says, I will help you do better. Doesn't that sound loving? Now that we've seen that Jesus did it for us, doesn't it seem like there's, there's some way by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we can Press in on the people who have hurt us. This happens all the time. It happens for me. It happens for you. The grace received has to be the grace applied. The blood of Christ. What a great way to transition to communion. Right? I mean, how, how easy is that? Like our hope in extending grace is our celebration of the grace that we've already received. I want you to take some time now and I I want you to pray specifically about any unforgiveness that you have toward anybody in your life. It can be small, it can be big. And ask for God's enabling grace. And and then where you have fallen short, if, if you're prone to feeling guilty, know that the blood of Christ covers that. And when you come forward, once the musicians start to play, take the bread and the cup, take them back to your seat, Go, come row by row, but, but the whole time, celebrate the grace of God unto forgiveness and unto enablement. Once everyone's been served, we'll partake of the elements together. Pray now.